0: section eight of one day's courtship and the heralds of fame by robert barr this librivox recording is in the public domain read by nat spratt chapter one of the heralds of fame now when each man's place in literature is so clearly defined it seems ridiculous to state there was a time when keenan buell thought j lawless hoden a great novelist one would have imagined that buell's keen insight into human nature would have made such a mistake impossible, but it must be remembered that Buell was always more or less of a hero worshipper. It seems strange, in the light of our after-knowledge, that there ever was a day when Hodden's books were selling by the thousand, and Buell was tramping the streets of London fruitlessly, searching for a publisher. Not less strange is the fact that Buell thought Hodden's success well deserved. He would have felt honored by the touch of Hodden's hand. No convict ever climbed a treadmill with more hopeless despair than Buell worked in his little room under the lofty roof. He knew no one. There were none to speak to him a cheering or comforting word. He was ignorant, even, of the names of the men who accepted the articles from his pen, which appeared unsigned in the daily papers and in some of the weeklies. He got checks, small ones, with illegible and impersonal signatures that told him nothing. But the bits of paper were honored at the bank and this lucky fact enabled him to live and write books which publishers would not look at. Nevertheless, showing how all things are possible, to a desperate and resolute man, two of his books had already seen the light, if it could be called light. The first he was still paying for, on the installment plan. The publishers were to pay half, and he was to pay half. This seemed to him only a fair division of the risk at the time. Not a single paper had paid the slightest attention to the book. The universal ignoring of it disheartened him. He had been prepared for abuse, but not for impenetrable silence. He succeeded in getting another and more respectable publisher to take up his next book on a royalty arrangement. This was a surprise to him, and a gratification. His satisfaction did not last long after the book came out. It was mercilessly slated. One paper advised him to read Hodden. Another said he had plagiarized from that popular writer— the criticisms cut him like a whip. He wondered why he had rebelled at the previous silence. He felt like a man who had heedlessly hurled a stone at a snow mountain and had been buried by the resulting avalanche. He got his third publisher a year after that. He thought he would never succeed in getting the same firm twice, and wondered what would happen when he exhausted the London list. It is not right that a man should go on forever without a word of encouragement fate recognized that there would come a breaking point and relented in time the word came from an unexpected source buell was laboring heavy-eyed at the last proof-sheets of his third book and was wondering whether he would have the courage not to look at the newspapers when the volume was published he wished he could afford to go to some wilderness until the worst was over he knew he could not miss the first notice for experience had taught him that snippet and company a clipping agency would send it to him with a nice typewritten letter, saying, Dear Sir, as your book is certain to attract a great deal of attention from the press, we shall be pleased to send you clippings similar to the enclosed at the following rates. It struck him as rather funny that any company should expect a sane man to pay so much good money for press notices, mostly abusive. He never subscribed. The word of encouragement gave notice of its approach in a letter signed by a man whom he had never heard. It was forwarded to him by his publishers the letter ran dear sir can you make it convenient to lunch with me on friday at the metropole if you have an engagement for that day can you further oblige me by writing and putting it off tell the other fellow you are ill or have broken your leg or anything and charge up the fiction to me ideal in fiction anyhow i leave on saturday for the continent not wishing to spend another sunday in london if i can avoid it i have arranged to get out your book in america having read the proof-sheets at your publishers. All the business part of the transaction is settled, but I would like to see you personally, if you don't mind, to have a talk over the future, always an interesting subject. Yours very truly, L. F. Brandt, of Rainham Brothers Publishers, New York. Buell read this letter over and over again. He had never seen anything exactly like it. There was a genial flippancy about it that was new to him, and he wondered what sort of a man the New Yorker was. Mr. Brandt wrote to a stranger with the familiarity of an old friend, yet the letter warmed Buell's heart. He smiled at the idea the American evidently had about a previous engagement. Invitations to lunch become frequent when a man does not need them. No broken leg story would have to be told. He wrote and accepted Mr. Brandt's invitation. "'You're Mr. Buell, I think?' The stranger's hand rested lightly on the young author's shoulder. Buell had just entered the unfamiliar precincts of the Metropole Hotel." The tall man, with the gold lace on his hat, had hesitated a moment before he swung open the big door. Buell was so evidently not a guest of the hotel. "'My name is Buell.' "'Then you're my victim. I've been waiting impatiently for you. I am L. F. Brandt.' "'I thought I was in time. I am sorry to have kept you waiting.' "'Don't mention it. I've been waiting but thirty seconds. Come up in the elevator.' "'They call it a lift here, not knowing any better, but it gets there ultimately.' I have the title deeds to a little parlor while I am staying in this tavern, and I thought we could talk better if we had lunch there. Lunch costs more on that basis, but I guess we can stand it. A cold shudder passed over the thin frame of Keenan Buell. He did not know, but it was the custom in America to ask a man to lunch and expect him to pay half. Brant's use of the plural lent color to this view, and Buell knew he could not pay his share. He regretted they were not in a vegetarian restaurant. The table in the center of the room was already set for two, and the array of wine glasses around each plate looked tempting. Brant pushed the electric button, drew up his chair, and said, "'Sit down, Buell, sit down. What's your favorite brand of wine? Let's settle on it now, so as to have no unseemly wrangle when the waiter comes. I'm rather in awe of the waiter. It doesn't seem natural that any mere human man should be so obviously superior—' "'to the rest of us mortals, as this waiter is. "'I'm going to give you only the choice of the first wines. "'I have taken the champagne for granted, "'and it's cooling now in a tub somewhere. "'We always drink champagne in the States. "'Not because we like it, but because it's expensive. "'I calculate that I pay the expenses of my trip over here "'merely by ordering unlimited champagne. "'I save more than a dollar a bottle on New York prices, "'and these save dollars count up in a month. "'Personally, I prefer cider or lager beer.' but in New York we dare not own to liking a thing unless it is expensive. It can hardly be a pleasant place for a poor man to live in, if that is the case. My dear Buell, no city is a pleasant place for a poor man to live in. I don't suppose New York is worse than London, in that respect. The poor have a hard time of it anywhere. A man owes it to himself and family not to be poor. Now that's one thing I like about your book. You touch on poverty in a sympathetic way, by George, like a man who had come through it himself. I've been there, and I know how it is. When I first struck New York, I hadn't even a ragged dollar bill to my back. Of course, every successful man will tell you the same of himself, but it is mostly brag, and in half the instances it isn't true at all. But in my case, well, I wasn't subscribing to the heathen in those days. I made up my mind that poverty didn't pay, and I have succeeded in remedying the state of affairs. But I haven't forgotten how it felt to be hard up. "'and I sympathize with those who are. "'Nothing would afford me greater pleasure "'than to give a helping hand to a fellow. "'That is, to a clever fellow who is worth saving, "'who is down at bedrock. "'Don't you feel that way, too?' "'Yes,' said Buell, with some hesitation. "'It would be a pleasure. "'I knew when I read your book you felt that way. "'I was sure of it. "'Well, I've helped a few in my time, "'but I regret to say most of them turned out to be no good. "'That is where the trouble is.' Those who are really deserving are just the persons who die of starvation in a garret, and never let the outside world know their trouble. I do not doubt such is often the case. Of course it is. It's always the case. But here's the soup. I hope you have brought a good appetite. You can't expect such a meal here as you would get in New York, but they do fairly well. I, for one, don't grumble about the food in London, as most Americans do. Londoners manage to keep alive, and that, after all, is the main thing. Yule was perfectly satisfied with the meal, and though, if they produced a better one in New York, or anywhere else, the art of cookery had reached wonderful perfection. Brandt, however, kept apologizing for the spread as he went along. The talk drifted on in an apparently aimless fashion, but the publisher was a shrewd man, and he was gradually leading it up to the point he had in view from the beginning, and all the while he was taking the measure of his guest. He was not a man to waste either his time or his dinners without an object. When he had once sized up his man, as he termed it, he was either exceedingly frank and open with him, or the exact opposite, as suited his purpose. He told Buell that he came to England once a year, if possible, rapidly scanned the works of fiction about to be published by the various houses in London, and made arrangements for the producing of those in America that he thought would go down with the American people. I suppose, said Buell, that you have met many of the noted authors of this country." "'All of them, I think, all of them, at one time or another. "'The publishing business has its drawbacks, like every other trade,' replied Brandt jauntily. "'Have you met Hodden?' "'Several times,' conceited Ass. "'You astonish me. "'I've never had the good fortune to become acquainted with any of our celebrated writers. "'I would think it a privilege to know Hodden and some of the others. "'You're lucky, and you evidently don't know it. "'I would rather meet a duke any day than a famous author.' The Duke puts on less side and patronizes you less. I would rather be a celebrated author than a Duke if I had my choice. Well, being a free and independent citizen of the democratic United States, I wouldn't. No, sir. I would rather be Duke Brandt any day in the week than Mr. Brandt, the talented author of etc. etc. The moment an author receives a little praise and becomes talked about, he gets what we call in the States the swelled head. I've seen some of the nicest fellows in the world become utterly spoiled by a little success, and then think of the absurdity of it all. There aren't more than two or three, at the most, of the present-day writers who will be heard of a century hence. Read the history of literature, and you will find that never more than four men in any one generation are heard of after. Four is a liberal allowance. What has any writer to be conceited about anyhow? Let him read his Shakespeare and be modest." "'Buel said with a sigh. "'I wish there was success in store for me. "'I would risk the malady you call the swelled head. "'Success will come all right enough, my boy. "'All things come to him who waits. "'And while he is waiting, "'puts in some good strong days of work. "'It's the working that tells, not the waiting. "'And now, if you will light one of these cigars, "'we will talk of you for a while, "'if your modesty will stand it. "'What kind of chartreuse will you have, "'yellow or green?' "'Either. "'Take the green, then,' "'Where the price is the same, I always take the green. "'It is the stronger, and you get more for your money. "'Now, then, I will be perfectly frank with you. "'I read your book in the proof-sheets, "'and I ran it down in great style to your publisher. "'I'm sorry you did not like it.' "'I don't say I didn't like it. "'I ran it down because it was business. "'I made up my mind when I read that book "'to give a hundred pounds for the American rights. "'I got it for twenty. "'Brant laughed, and Buell felt uncomfortable.' He feared that, after all, he did not like this Frank American. "'Having settled about the book, I wanted to see you, and here you are. "'Of course, I am utterly selfish in wanting to see you, "'for I wish you to promise me that we will have the right of publishing your books in America "'as long as we pay as much as any other publisher. "'There is nothing unfair in that, is there? "'No, I may warn you, however, that there has been no great competition, so far, "'for the privilege of doing any publishing, either here or in America.' That's all right. Unless I'm a Dutchman, there will be, after your new book is published. Of course, that is one of the things no fellow can find out. If he could, publishing would be less of a lottery than it is. A book is sometimes a success by the merest fluke. At other times, in spite of everything, a good book is a deplorable failure. I think yours will go, anyhow. I am willing to bet on it up to a certain amount, and if it does go, I want to have the first look in at your future books. What do you say? Do you wish me to sign a contract? No, I merely want your word. You may write me a letter, if you like, that I could show to my partners, saying that we would have the first refusal of your future books. I'm quite willing to do that. Very good. That's settled. Now you look fagged out. I wish you would take a trip over to New York. I'll look after you when you get there. It would do you a world of good, and would show in the pages of your next book. What do you say to that? Have you any engagements that would prevent you making the trip? Buell laughed. I am perfectly free, as far as engagements are concerned. That's all right, then. I wish I were in that position. Now, as I said, I considered your book cheap at a £100. I got it for £20. I propose to hand over the £80 to you. I'll write out the check as soon as the waiters clear away the debris. Then your letter to the firm would form the receipt for this money, and, well... It need not be a contract, you know, or anything formal, but just your ideas on any future business that may crop up. I must say, I think your offer is very generous. Oh, not at all. It is merely business. The eighty pounds is on account of royalties. If the book goes, as I think it will, I hope to pay you much more than that. Now I hope you will come over and see me as soon as you can. Yes, as you say, the trip will do me good. I've been rather hard at it for some time. Then I'll look out for you. I sail on the French line Saturday week. When will you come? As soon as my book is out here, and before any of the reviews appear. Sensible man, what's your cable address? I haven't one. Well, I suppose a telegram to your publishers will find you. I'll cable if anything turns up unexpectedly. You send me over a despatch saying what steamer you sail on. My address is Rushing, New York. Just cable the name of the steamer, and I will be on the lookout for you. It was doubtless the effect of the champagne, for Buell went back to his squalid room with his mind in the clouds. He wondered if this condition was the first indication of the swelled head Brant had talked about. Buell worked harder than ever at his proofs, and there was some growling at headquarters because of the numerous corrections he made. These changes were regarded as impudence on the part of so unknown a man. He sent off to America a set of the corrected proofs and received a cablegram. Proofs received, too late, book published today. This was a disappointment. Still, he had the consolation of knowing that the English edition would be as perfect as he could make it. He secured a berth on the geranium, sailing from Liverpool, and cabled Brant to that effect. The day before he sailed, he got a cablegram that bewildered him. It was simply, she's a booming. He regretted that he had never learned the American language. End of chapter one.